0: If you have your Bibles, take those out and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we have two chapters left in the book of Luke, and then we will finally end our saga in the book of Luke. We, uh, if you remember this far back, and as I look in this room, I think there may only be um, two people that remember this far back. Uh, we actually started preaching through the book of Luke when we were still meeting at St. James West United Methodist Church. Believe it or not, we used to meet in a United Methodist Church in their youth room uh, way back when, uh, just shortly after we started, and um, uh, now here we are, and still preaching in Luke. Uh, so, But we are getting close to the finish line, um, and what's what's we're at a point now where as we get closer to the finish line... Uh, We get closer to the climax of the story, we also are kind of making our way through the hard parts of the story, through the sad parts of the story, through the parts of the story that are, frankly, hard for us to hear, hard for us to read. But the title of my sermon for today is Don't Follow Your Heart. My advice that I am presenting to you today in the title of my sermon runs directly contrary to what the world would tell you. For Don't Follow Your Heart is probably the most cliche of all cliches that you could possibly hear and hear it all the time. In fact, I think it's such a common turn of phrase that you probably hear it on a somewhat regular basis and don't even notice that you're hearing it. It doesn't even stand out to you. It's kind of one of those like motivational lines that has been used so much that it almost means nothing anymore. But I would argue, I would pose that, uh, that following your heart is indeed bad advice, but it's advice that the world gives. I'm going to read for you just, just a few quotes of very well-known, prominent people. This is a quote from Steve Jobs. He says, Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living in, in, with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your inner voice. And most important... Have the courage to follow your heart. Steve Jobs. Brian Stetzer, also quoted, says, if you listen to everybody's opinions, I mean, I always say I'd be digging a ditch on the side of the road now if I had listened to what everybody told me what to do. You know, you have to follow your heart. You have to, says Brian Stetzer. We see another quote by a very well-known person. He says, make sure that you always follow your heart and your gut and let yourself be who you want to be and who you know you are. And don't let anyone steal your joy. This is Jonathan Groff. If you are unfamiliar, that was a quote from Christoph in Frozen. So if you can't believe Christoph in Frozen, who can you believe? Follow your heart, he says. Finally, I have one more quote, and this is another quote from Steve Jobs. And I am quoting Steve Jobs again because of specifically what he says in this quote, which I find to be really, really sad, frankly. Steve Jobs says this. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. This is possibly the worst and most dangerous advice that you could possibly receive from anyone. Steve Jobs saying that remembering that you are going to die is the best way possible that he knows of to avoid the trap, he says, of thinking you have something to lose. The saddest part of this statement is that he doesn't even consider the fact that he has a soul that can be lost. But this is the world, right? The world says, follow your heart. This is common advice in the world. But frankly, it's not advice that's limited to the world. This is the kind of advice you might hear from your Christian therapist or your uh, Facebook friend who loves to encourage people, loves to build people up. That's a good thing to build people up. But this is a common motif of follow your heart. And I think for a lot of people, it's used without really even giving any thought to what they're actually saying. Without giving any thought really to the theological implications behind this. I remember um, one time whenever I was brand new at St. Vincent. I had just started there. I was 21 years old, and I already knew that I wanted to be in ministry. Uh, I was finishing my undergraduate and then was planning on going to seminary, and everyone I worked with there knew that. And most of them thought, that's really cool, that's awesome, that's cool that you want to be a pastor. And they were, by and large, supportive of, of that, even the ones who didn't claim Christ. But I remember this really interesting moment where there was one woman that worked there in our, in our department who um, loved the Lord, uh, was one of the people there that I knew that went to church regularly. Um, she definitely went to a church very different than a church like Redeemer, um, but she, she did go to church and I knew that and I knew that she was extremely excited when she found out I was going to be a pastor. And within a couple months of me starting there, she came up to me and gave me some advice. She started her statement by saying, I go to a church where we believe in prophecy. And I thought, oh boy, what is about to come out of her mouth? She says, I go to church where we believe in prophecy. Where we believe that we can receive a word from the Lord and that it's my job to pass that word from the Lord along to you. And God told me, that you just need to follow your heart. Follow your heart and you will be happy. You will be successful, things will go great for you. This was what she told me. And I frankly didn't know how to respond other than thank you, thank you very much. That's, that's great, I appreciate that. But it was, even though it was well intended, I think this woman is super awesome. Uh, I think she, I loved working with her, worked with her for a few more years after that. Um, but this was bad advice. It's bad advice to give someone to tell them to follow their heart, at least without a pile of disclaimers. Because you all probably, maybe not all of you, but I know some of you are already thinking of the verse that I'm about to quote to you. This is a verse from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, where the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why on earth would you want to follow this, the heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately sick? Who can understand it? Following your heart is frankly bad advice. That is my my mission today is to encourage you of this. And hopefully I can give you some understandings of exactly what I mean when I say this and some examples of this. But this is my main idea today. My main idea is that the heart of man leads him to wickedness and guilt, but in Christ there is life and freedom. There is a better and right alternative to following your heart, and it is found in no other place but Christ Jesus. And we will see that today. In our text today, we're going to see three examples of where our hearts will lead us if we choose to follow our heart. We will see the example from Herod, we will see an example from Pilate, we will see an example from the crowd of people that are there. But then ultimately, we will see what the correct course of action is and what it should be for those who desire to live godly lives. But let's start with point number one. Jesus exposes the heart of Herod. Let me, first of all, I need to read our text. We're going to start by reading our entire text and then jumping into point number one. We're going to start in verse one of chapter 23 of Luke. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been in enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold... I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges of him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that the demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder For whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look into this sad and unjust and wicked scene, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what your word has us to see. I pray that you would open our ears to hear what you would have us to hear today. I pray that you would guide me as I seek to teach your word faithfully. And pray that your word ultimately would prevail over all things and over all voices, including my own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So point number one of our text, as I said, is that Jesus exposes the heart of Herod. Herod, as we know, was a extremely, extremely wicked man. He was a man that was set up by the Roman government as a sort of puppet leader, as one who they could kind of control as he controlled the Jewish people. He was... One that was put in place, but really one that was put in place simply as a show, simply as a puppet of the Roman government. And they could not have picked a more wicked or terrible individual as we see from his life. If you know from the story that Herod, this man named Herod Antipas, had already in fact murdered John the Baptist. And the story behind why he murdered John the Baptist demonstrates his wickedness. John the Baptist was coming to Herod and and was making him really angry. Why? Not because he was trampling on his flowers, not because he was interrupting his quiet time, but because John the Baptist was confronting Herod saying, it is not lawful for you to be sleeping with your brother's wife. This was common. This was like the, the most wicked of wicked things that you could do. And John was here exposing to Herod, hey, you are being wicked. You are doing something that is evil, that is sinful. You should not be doing this. And Herod, uh, wanting to kill him, but yet kind of fearing the Lord, fearing the people, didn't kill him, but locked him up, treated him with disdain, left him in prison. But ultimately, what was the downfall of John? What happened that caused Herod to ultimately kill John was even a further demonstration of his wickedness for the story goes that in scripture this is not a story I'm making up this is God's word that reveals to us that Herod was was uh watching his his wife's daughter was watching his really his brother's wife's daughter dance erotically she came before him and all his friends as they were having this big party and danced and enticed them and he was pleased by it the text tells us And he gives to this woman, he says, I will give you anything you ask. Under oath, I will give you whatever you ask, it will be yours. And this daughter of Herodias, his brother's wife, goes to her and says, what should I ask? And and this woman who hated John for calling out sin the way he had said, John the Baptist's death is what I want. And so her daughter went back to Herod and said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter, And Herod did, as she said, and killed John, served his head up to her on a platter. This was a wicked and evil and terrible man who, frankly, throughout the story, we see his heart becoming harder and harder and harder to the things of God. What I find interesting, though, and we're going to see this uh, throughout as we look, is that um, one author, one commentator named Kent Hughes did something really interesting in his commentary that I really enjoyed. If you look in your Bibles, in your, in your what's called the superscript, that is kind of the label that is given to each section of Scripture, what you'll see is that in here we see it titled, Jesus Before Pilate, right? We see it titled, the part about Herod, Jesus Before Herod. But what's interesting is that what this commentator did in his commentary is the title of these sections is Herod Before Jesus. It's, Pilate before Jesus. And I love, I love that he does this because what he is indicating for us in switching the name saying, this is not really Jesus as some lowly person, as some weak individual, as someone of no importance standing before this great ruler. No, these are these human beings, these men, these frail, wicked individuals standing before God Almighty. They are the ones who are lowly. They are the ones who are weak. And we see this shining through our text All throughout these instances but here we see uh, Herod before Jesus as as Herod has false motivations for even wanting to see Jesus you might think from the text when it says Herod was glad when he saw Jesus he was very glad for he had long desired to see him you might think oh wow well maybe this is the man who's gonna save him maybe Herod will set him free maybe Herod will uh, will believe in Jesus and set him free but what we recognize, what we see is that he has no intention of, of freeing Jesus. He has no desire to see Jesus for seeking him as the Messiah or as the Savior. Rather, his motivations are just that he wants to see something cool. He says he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod just wants to see a magic trick. He just wants to see something, Jesus do something cool. He's like that little kid on the Incredibles who's just sitting there watching. And Mr. Incredible says, what are you waiting for? And he says, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. This is Herod. He just wants to see something cool. He wants to see Jesus perform for him like a jester before a court. And when Jesus is silent before him, says nothing, he ultimately treats him with disdain. He mocks him. He rebukes him along with his men. What this is, is this is Herod following his heart. This is Herod following his desires, following his feelings, doing what he wants to do. And Herod's heart is marked by mockery, by foolishness, by selfishness. The disdain he shows Jesus here is developed, is coming from a heart that is so wicked, that is selfish, that is foolish. He cared only about himself, about what he could gain, about what he could get from Jesus, about what he could see, the enjoyment that he could gain in that moment, in that instance herod followed his heart and it led him to treat the very son of god with contempt to mock him to beat him i think in each of these cases that we're gonna see from herod to Pilate to the crowd i think in each of this we can see relatable examples even for us i think this example that we see from herod how his heart is marked by mockery, by foolishness, by selfishness. This is one that I know for me I can see myself in. What do we see from Herod? We see mockery. We see joking. We see him just seeking to have a good time, have a laugh at Jesus' expense. I know for me it is really, really easy because of various sinful things in my life, sinful things that I think run in all of our lives. It's very easy for me to go for a joke or a laugh first and foremost without concern for what does Christ think about this? And we can very easily find ourselves even laughing, making light of, finding enjoyment and pleasure in the very things that bring disdain. The very things that God hates, we can take pleasure in if we are not careful. If we follow our hearts, indeed, that's where we'll find ourselves. We'll find ourselves foolish. We'll find ourselves making a mockery of Christ. We'll find ourselves Laughing and taking pleasure in the very things that God hates. The very things that put Christ on the cross, in fact, we can take pleasure in. This is Herod. This is Herod, but this is also something that we can find ourselves doing as well. Because if you find yourself taking pleasure, making light of the evil around you, then you might be following your heart rather than seeking Christ. And we ought to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves to consider, are we following our hearts or are we following Christ in this way? Point number two, Jesus exposes the heart of Pilate. And we see this kind of instance of Pilate broken up into verses 1 through 5 and then verses 13 through 16. We see in verses 1 through 5, let's look there. We see, as they began to accuse him, what did they say? They said, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Let's stop right there. Is that a true statement? Based solely on what we know from Scripture, that is absolutely false. In fact, when Jesus taught about money, when he was asked the question, is it right for us to pay tribute to Caesar? What did he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus never told anyone not to give to Caesar. He said the opposite. He says, hey, it's got Caesar's picture on it. He has the right to demand it of you. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This was a flat out lie. All of this is a lie, really, is a deception. He says, we found this man misleading our nation. And then after that, they said, he is saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate was no fool. Pilate wasn't an idiot. He could look at Jesus. He could see his ministry. He could see the things that he's doing. And he knew that this was nothing. Jesus wasn't going around acting like he was some king vying for for power, vying for the throne. He could see that Jesus wasn't going around causing riots, stirring up insurrection. This is not who he was. Even Pilate could see that. But Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, you have said so. Again, like last time, like last week, we see Jesus not denying, answering in the affirmative. Ultimately, all of this leads Pilate to say, I find no guilt in this man. This man is innocent. Pilate admits himself. And I think to, to best understand this passage of Scripture, this instance of Jesus before Pilate, it will be helpful for us to look at the book of John and John's account, which gives us a more detailed account of Jesus' interactions with Pilate in John chapter 18 and 19. And one of the first things that we, that we notice from Pilate is just how quickly he is to pass the buck. How quickly Pilate will easily push the responsibility onto the next person. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to face the consequences of this. I don't want to have to do what's right in this situation. I'll pass it on to someone else. Which is why he says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law in John chapter 18, verse 31. Pilate saw through this fake argument. Pilate saw, saw this to be a fraud. Pilate said, I don't care about any of this, and I frankly don't want to get involved. Take him and judge him by your courts. We see him passing the buck also as he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, that he is a Galilean, and realizes, well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Well, Herod is here in Jerusalem. Perfect. I can send Jesus over to Herod. He can deal with it. I don't have to mess with it. Wash my hands of it. No problem. No problem. So he does sends him over to Jesus, or excuse me, over to Herod Antipas. This becomes the mark of how we come to view Pilate by and large in this story. We see his, him not as one committed to justice and truth in line with Roman's justice system and the reputation that it had. Instead, we see him as a coward. We see him as one looking to pass on responsibility. We see him as a man afraid to do the right thing because he was afraid of what the crowds might do. This man is a coward, ultimately. Then let's look in John chapter 18, verses 36 through 38. We see this interaction between Jesus and Pilate in verses 36 through 38. Jesus answered, "'My kingdom is not one of this world.'" This is after Pilate has asked him, "'Are you a king? "'Are you king of the Jews?' voice. And then Pilate reveals himself, reveals what he is listening to, reveals that he is listening truly to his heart. When Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? This moral relativism, this cop-out, this brushing off of what Jesus has just declared by Pilate is a demonstration that we see in our world today as well. A rejection of truth, a rejection of any sort of objective reality, even of who Jesus is. This brushing off, this, this objecting to objective truth, this saying that truth is relative. What is truth anyway? We can never figure it out, so why bother trying? This was the heart behind Pilate. Pilate didn't really believe in no truth. He didn't really believe that truth was that hard to understand, In fact, in most of his daily life as all moral relativists even today live, they recognize and live according to objective truth. It was no different for Pilate. He simply wanted to abdicate. He simply didn't want to worry about this. Simply wanted to cop out. He followed his heart rather than following Christ. Rather than listening to Christ's voice. Rather than listening to the truth. Then in what is Probably the most powerful demonstration of Jesus' authority, far greater than any other, comes in John chapter 19, verses 9 through 11. This is really one of those moments when I think, yeah, this was not really Jesus before Pilate. This was Pilate before Jesus, where Jesus says in chapter 19 of John, verses 9 and following, he entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate says, your life is in my hands. I have the authority over you to do whatever I will with you. I have the authority. And Jesus answered him in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus, hearing Pilate's declaration of his authority, says, you have no authority except that which God has given to you. Ultimately, Pilate, you're a nobody. The authority truly lies with God. The authority lies with God the Father and with Jesus Christ whom he has sent and granted dominion over his kingdom. But ultimately, after all of this, and after Pilate admits his fear, the text tells us, Pilate was afraid when he found out the claim that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. Pilate was like, well, shoot, what if he is? Am I about to condemn the Son of God? Am I about to condemn this divine being if he truly is? The Romans believed in multiple gods. They had all kinds of belief systems. For all he know, man, he could have been something, some sort of divinity but ultimately, Pilate lets his fear of the people win the day, even giving into their threat of blackmail that the Jews make in verse 12 of chapter 19, where we read, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. So Pilate recognized, man, I think this guy's I know this guy's innocent, and I'm afraid he might actually be somebody really important. The text says, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes sealer, Caesar. So we see in verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone, uh, stone pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. And what ultimately do we see in our text in Luke and here in John is that he bends to their commands. His fear of the crowd, his fear of the people, his fear of man outweighs his fear of God. Pilate's heart, which he was fully following in these instances, is marked by abdication, by cowardice, and by fear. Pilate followed his heart, and it led him to condemn the only perfect and righteous man who ever lived, the spotless Lamb of God. If there was ever anyone who could stand up against a truly just system and stand righteous and be declared innocent, it was Jesus Christ. And yet this is the man who he turns over to the crowd, who he condemns, who he says, fine, crucify him. And again, we see in this example of Pilate traces that we can find in our own heart today. We see Pilate following his heart, and it is marked by cowardice. It is marked by fear of man. It is marked by a willingness to abdicate our responsibility and to relax our sense of truth and justice. So if you find yourself becoming cowardly, fearing man more than you fear God, then you might be following your heart rather than following the truth, just like Pilate. Point number three is that Jesus exposes the heart of the crowd. We have seen Jesus expose the heart of Herod. He's exposed the heart of Pilate. And now we see the heart of the crowd exposed in verses 18 through 25, in the final part of our section. We see here, we'll read it again, but they all cried out together, this is the Jews that are there, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. We see the people here crying out for this man Barabbas to be released. If you recall from the story, There, on the day of Passover, it was customary for the ruler there at the time, for Pilate, to release a prisoner, to show a sense of mercy, to show a sense of grace, but to release someone back into the crowd and to forgive them, to pardon them of their guilt. And in Pilate's mind, well, this is perfect. Now is the time when I can release someone back to the people, and what better person than someone who's actually innocent? He found his final way that he could kind of get away from the responsibility of doing what these people want, of killing the son of God, of killing Jesus. So he says, how about this? I will beat this man, kind of give him a little punishment, rough him up a little bit, and then release him back to you as is customary. It's customary for us to release someone. If I can release this man. He hasn't committed any violent crimes, pretty safe, seems like a nice guy. In fact, I find him innocent. I can just release him. This was Pilate's idea. But what we see is that the crowd absolutely rejects this idea. The crowd in this story is perhaps, perhaps present to us the most sad and depressing picture of all, because of all three of these, all three of these people, whether it be Herod or Pilate or the crowds, these people, this crowd was made up of God's people. These were Jews. These were Israelites. These were God's chosen people, and here they are now following their hearts and rejecting their Savior the Messiah that the Lord God Yahweh had promised so long ago that he would send. They were now standing with hardened hearts, rejecting their own Savior. With all the information they had, with the law, with the Old Testament, with the prophets, they now stand condemning Jesus, their Messiah. Perhaps what could be considered the high mark of Israel's history would be the instance in Exodus, the story where Jesus delivers his people who are in bondage to the Pharaoh, who are in bondage in Egypt, being treated poorly, being, being slaves to the Egyptian people, and God delivers them. He does so by means of, of the Passover where the, there's all those plagues and the final plague is the, the angel of death passes over all of the Israelites, all those who put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, but everyone who was not marked by the blood of the lamb, their firstborn died. And then God leads them out, parts the Red Sea for them, leads them into the promised land. This is the high watermark in the history of the people of Israel. And and the greatest demonstration of God's promise-keeping care for his people is seen in this story. And yet what we see, which I find so fascinating, is we see a sort of reversal of roles now where the people of God are falling more in line with the behaviors of the Egyptian Pharaoh in that day. For what does the Bible say? What does the book of Exodus say that Pharaoh did when he refused to let the people go? The text says that time after time, what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. Pharaoh's refusal to let the people of God go was Pharaoh following his heart. Following his hard, dead, cruel heart to put them in bondage and to seek to keep them there no matter what. Even after all those plagues, even after all that he had seen, all the suffering, his heart was still hardened, but he kept following it anyway. Again, the book of John records some of the most piercing and convicting words uttered by this crowd of Jews. In verse 15 of chapter 19, we see these words, and these are some of the most sad words. Verse 15 says, They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. What a sad, sad display this is. Where out of the hardness of his heart, this high priest speaking for the people says, we have no king but Caesar. We see here the ultimate and final rejection of their Messiah by the people of Israel to the point that they would rather yield their loyalty over to this pagan, idolatrous, harsh ruler of the Roman government yielding to Caesar rather than to yield their loyalty, rather than submit to Jesus and accept his authority. The crowd's heart here, the Jewish crowd's heart is marked by hatred, by hardness, by aggression, and by ignorance. And again, even we as Christians can recognize the symptoms of this in our own heart and in our own life. And at this point specifically, I would would speak specifically to men. And I can say this because I know this in my own heart, in my own life, I think there is a tendency for men to view certain qualities as good in any regard and to any degree because we see just maybe a hint of them in Scripture. See, for men, I think we we sometimes value traits like aggression, value traits like anger. The idea of being hot-headed for a man is somewhat accepted even within the church. Harshness is accepted by men and, and to a certain extent regarded as manliness, right? Even if we maybe wouldn't say, all oh, these are good and godly qualities, we sometimes laugh at them, we sometimes enjoy them, we sometimes say, yep, sometimes you've just got to be that way as a man. And mind you, this is not me saying that men should be wimps. This is not me saying that men should be effeminate or that men should be sissies or pushovers. In fact, I would stand here and boldly proclaim to you, as men, there are times when you need to be firm, when you need to be hard, when you need to have a certain amount of aggression. But we need to be careful that these qualities of aggression, of being hard, of being fierce, of being firm, are not qualities that are regarded above what they ought to be. That they are qualities that are rooted in the parameters prescribed in scripture not in what our heart determines because here's the problem for for men it is really easy us to follow our hearts in this way it's really easy for us to think oh it's okay for men to be aggressive so when that guy cut me off uh, on on the street it was okay for me to kind of get mad and hit my steering wheel and yell. it's just just the way men are we're aggressive right that's still sin why is it that you got angry? You got angry because you felt entitled to a specific place in the lane, and you were denied that. You felt like you were wronged by this other person who you will never know or never meet, and therefore you're angry. I think sometimes we think as men, the, this follow your heart mentality doesn't apply to us. This is an effeminate thing. Women really like these kind of statements. Oh, just follow your heart. That's a girl thing. You'd see it in like you know, the women's sections at clothing stores or on Pinterest or something like that. Uh, but it's not really a manly thing. Men know better than to follow their hearts. I would argue that when you as a man find yourself getting angry in an ungodly way, when you find yourself as a man being harsh with your family, when you find yourself as a man never being kind, never being gentle, never being uh, kind and compassionate with your family and with those around you or even with complete strangers, It's because you're following your heart rather than following the Lord. If you find yourself becoming hard, merciless, harsh, then you might be following your heart rather than following God's word. And we need to call this out where we find it. We need to not accept it. I know I've spoken primarily to women on on this specific issue, men on this specific issue, but for women, I recognize fully that there are issues that are specifically more of a temptation for women's hearts. they are for men. And I'm not going to get into all those details, but you know what they are. So we have to examine our hearts. We have to examine why we're doing the things that we're doing. We have to examine what it is that we're following. Are we following our hearts, or are we following God's word and submitting to that? Point number four, don't follow your heart. Submit to the Lord. Even if you are a Christian in here today, following your heart is a bad idea. Yes, I recognize that the Bible tells us that the Lord has replaced our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. Yes, I recognize that the Bible says that out of the heart, man believes and is saved. But I would still encourage you, if you are turning inwardly to find answers, if you are turning inwardly to know how you should live your life, then you're turning to a subpar solution at best. Where we ought to look for direction in our lives is we ought to look to the word of God. We ought to look to Christ to find out how it is that we are to live. Not to our own hearts, not to our own feelings, not to our own desires, for they are flawed and will inevitably lead us astray. We have the best thing that we can turn to right here. The word of God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And I recognize that there are many times the reason we turn to our heart instead of to scripture is because we frankly don't know scripture the way we ought. We don't read God's word the way we ought. And again, let us remedy that. Let us correct that. But I want you to think about the most common reasons that someone would tell you to follow your heart. Follow your heart so that you might have joy. Well, that's a lie. While it may be true that following our hearts may bring us pleasure for the moment, may bring us some sense of temporary satisfaction or happiness, true and lasting joy comes not from anything in ourselves, not from anything in this world, but from Christ. That's the only joy that lasts. The world says follow your heart and you will have your best life. Again, this is a deception of Satan. The best life that we could possibly live is one that is set on not just this life only but on life eternal. If your best life ends when you die, that is not a good life. Your best life is found only when your life is eternal in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 through 4 enlightens us here. In the opening passages of 1 John, John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen And we have heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Completeness of joy, fullness of joy, life eternal, the word of life comes not from anything in us, not from anything in this world, but it comes from Christ and through Christ. And what's interesting as you read through the book of John, do we find a bunch of Uh, lollipops and rainbows no in fact some of the words of of first john are very hard we hear of coming pain coming things to watch out for coming hardships that we will have to face but what we ultimately see is that joy is ours in fact complete joy is ours because of christ and him revealed to us To listen to the voice in you telling you to follow your heart is like me listening to the voice telling me to chug my coffee as soon as I pour it out of the coffee pot. It's a bad idea. I'm going to chug that coffee, and it's going to burn my mouth, and then I'm not going to enjoy anything for the rest of the day, maybe the next two days. It's a stupid decision. For those of you who don't drink coffee, substitute hot chocolate. As soon as you get your hot chocolate from Starbucks and you're $10 shorter, you chug that thing right away instant regret. You might think it's a good idea. That inner voice is telling you, man, it's so good. Just chug it. You're going to do it and you're going to regret it. The same is true if we follow our hearts. The reality is that strip clubs, prisons, places of debauchery and wickedness, they are filled with those people who follow their heart. People who are letting no one else tell them what to do. No dogma hold them back. I do what suits me. And their end is not one of lasting joy, is not one of a happy life. Even though it might seem like it in the moment. Even though it might seem like it when you see the people on TV doing the things that are wicked, doing the things that are wrong, and finding joy, and are happy, and they're smiling, they're giggling. But ultimately, that does not lead to lasting joy. Instead, it leads to eternal conscious torment unless you repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Not only are strip clubs, prisons, filled with people who followed their heart, but ultimately, hell will be filled with people who followed their heart. Heaven, on the other hand, will be filled with those who followed Christ instead of following their heart. And here's where we get to the part that I really, really want us to see. Because frankly, you might be sitting there asking the question, how do I follow my heart instead of Christ? Or how do I follow Christ instead of my heart? I feel like I'm bound to follow my heart. I feel like I have no other choice. And the answer is that apart from Christ, you don't. Apart from Christ, no one can do anything other than follow their heart. That thing which is wicked, which is guilty, which is deceitful. But ultimately, in Christ Jesus, we are enlightened, we are given the ability to do more than just follow our sinful desires. In fact, we are given new desires, we are given desires to follow, to seek after Christ, and we are given God's word, and we are given the ability to understand it and to follow it. But here's the, the main thing that I want us to see, because I would be remiss if I didn't point out what I believe to be the most beautiful picture of the gospel in this story, and that is the example given us in Barabbas. Why was this guy Barabbas even in the story? What on earth is he doing here? What does he add to the story of Jesus going to the cross? In fact, he doesn't even isn't even quoted as saying anything. It's just this guy Barabbas, who all we know about him insurrectionist and a murderer. Why is he even in the story? Well, I would argue that Barabbas is in the story because Barabbas gives us a picture of what it really is that happens to believers who are in Christ Jesus. Because what happens to Barabbas? He's set free. Was Barabbas innocent or was Barabbas guilty? He was guilty. In fact, Barabbas was guilty of the very crimes that Jesus was being accused of. He was an insurrectionist. This is what the Jews were levying against Christ. He's gonna cause riots. He's gonna try and overthrow you. He's an insurrectionist. Barabbas is an actual insurrectionist. And then to top it it all off, he is a murderer on top of that. This is a truly wicked, terrible man. And so when Pilate presents him to say, I will release him, or I will release Jesus or Barabbas, they can choose. And the people ultimately choose Barabbas. And Christ, who was innocent, is the one who is punished, the one who is condemned. Barabbas, who actually deserved the cross, was pardoned was set free, not because he had actually paid the price, not because he was actually guilt-free, but he was declared innocent, he was declared pardoned